Hello and welcome to Laidback Lush, a podcast where we discuss wine, beer, and spirits. I'm Michael, a former wine sales associate and vineyard worker. And I am Gabe. I am WSET Level 3 certified in wine, and I am an administrator for a wine and spirits educating body. Today, we are going to be talking about wine in what is called the New World, mm-hmm. how it got there, some of the uh, specifics as to which grapes and which people were particularly influential in its introduction, and that's going to be about where we stop. Before we get into that, though, before we get into it, we are so sorry for our last episode. Oh we're, we're not actually, but uh, man, it turned out a little, little more intense than we a thought little, it would. A little dark. <laughs> a little dark. Um, we went into it with all of the optimism of a puppy seeing snow for the first time. Yeah. And we found out that it was not snow. It was fiberglass. So it was, it was quite, uh, quite the journey for us. So, again, special shout out to Buzzballs for being the worst alcohol experience we have ever had. Congratulations. Apparently, I have not told you this. I spoke to a friend of mine who lived in Dallas for about two years. Oh, it's definitely from Dallas. I don't know if it's from Dallas, but apparently everybody loves Buzzballs in Texas. So, Texas, um, I don't know what happened. I don't know who hurt you. Well, I mean, it's that's city Texas, though. Like, Texas yeah. is huge. Yeah. A lot of it is very rural. So you, you, can't, you can't say that about the whole place. It's, it's, it's too big. It's too big to judge. <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> <laughs> if you say so, Michael. If I say so. Well, if no. you're from Texas and you're listening to this, know that I am indeed judging you. <laughs> I'm, kidding. Yeah. I'm kidding. Now, my family isn't from Texas. I do have some family in Texas, though. But the thing is, is that they have certain religious beliefs that keep them from drinking. So, I mean... They're safe. Actually, they're not safe, <laughs> though, from my judgment, because they like coffee with, like, a third of the amount of grounds that you're supposed to put in it. They like it to be more of, like, a tea. I was about to say, so they want coffee tea. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and huh. they love chock full of nuts. I used to live with someone who was obsessed with chock full of nuts. Yeah, I was actually talking with somebody about this earlier this week, but a, a lot of people from World War II generation, yeah. they love uh, 8 o'clock and chock mm-hmm. full of nuts, which isn't doesn't even have nuts anymore. It's mostly just chicory root, which is... Not particularly good for you. It can irritate your gastrointestinal tract. That's neither here Fun nor times. There. This is laid back lunch where I sometimes <laughs> talk about coffee instead. <laughs> I mean, it's still a liquid, right? And you drink it. So. It can be an ingredient hey, inside Irish of an Irish coffee. coffee. There yeah. it is. Yeah. <laughs> That's the ticket. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we're just talking, doing a deep dive on coffee, the ingredient in Irish coffee. So speaking of oppressed people groups, mm. <laughs> what a segue that was. Yeah. Let's Colonialism. Talk, colonialism, which is basically the theme for today. So when we're talking about wine in the new world, we really are mostly talking about trade routes, the expansion of imperialists, colonialism, and the need to plant things everywhere you set your foot. Yeah. Yeah, and there are certain consequences that came about from even just that simple action. We are not going to be getting so much into the politics or the oppressive practices that were put in place. This is not that podcast. Yeah, we kind of figured for a lot of these countries, if we do get into that, it would probably be more apt and appropriate to give it its own episode researching that country's 
history in particular. Yeah. Plus, this episode would be five hours long if we were really to get into the nitty gritty of all this stuff. So this is going to be in tone more of an overview of these areas, who is responsible for bringing it in, and even some of the more specific consequences like phylloxera, which is not something that we're going to be getting into into this episode. We're we're going to save that for another that, time. That deserves its own episode. That really does. Yeah. That changed the entire world of, yes. of winemaking. What we were kind of focusing on in this episode is, like Michael said, it's kind of an overview and more of an overview of how these countries got their start more than necessarily a full rundown of how they got to where they are today. Precisely. And strangely enough, we find some of those first steps out from Spain, especially because Spain was kind of what ended up being what started to spread wine Mm -hmm. from the European continent towards those areas we call the New World. If you remember from our last episode, Spain and Portugal or the Iberian Peninsula, because they were unified for a very Mm -hmm. long time, we ended that episode with they had the largest trading fleet in the world. So that's kind of the jumping off point to tie it back into where we ended last time. That's kind of the starting point for this episode. They're going out, they're expanding, their royalty wants to establish colonies. So this is kind of the era of, you know, Columbus. Exactly. Or starting out, at least. It's the era of Columbus. Columbus didn't really think about, during his first voyage, the idea of establishing anything because he thought that he was going to be running into India. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was the whole point, you know. They wanted the rhubarb. So as they were going during the first one, they end up landing, doing a bunch of really awful things, and then they had a second voyage. And their second voyage ended up landing them on a little island in the Caribbean that they decided to name for themselves Hispaniola. So that happened in 1492. Now, at the same time, uh, Spain was bringing in wine to Mexico. So this all was kind of happening during those couple of centuries where you, you had voyages going over. Everybody's interested in what's going on in the New World. Everybody wants to explore there. Everybody wants to meet and greet the people. Um, and... That's one way to put it. <laughs> That's, uh, we're, we're trying. We're trying so hard. Um, <laughs> the they brought over Vitis vinifera because there were grapes in the Americas already. Specifically, muscadine grapes are all over the place. Mm-hmm. But of course, in in the more southerly regions like Mexico, we covered in our mezcal and tequila episode. They more would go for a drink that was made from agave. Yeah. So. That was the thing that they did. That's how Vitis vinifera and the cultivating of wine ended up landing into the Americas. With the Americas came a lot of stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But as you said, we brought over some Vitis vinifera vines. Would they have been particularly uh, well adapted to that environment? Because, I mean, we're talking about an island in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Coming from Spain, I imagine so. Maybe the wetness of the environment would have been a little off for them. Maybe that could have caused some mildew problems. But from my readings, there weren't really a whole lot of problems growing those vines, at Mm. least. Mm. And Columbus took his second voyage in 1494. So that, that is, in the Americas, the first documented bringing in of Vitis vinifera vines, specifically to do wine production. Part of the logic was 
you know, you don't want to risk because we still didn't have very effective means of transporting wine on these Mm -hmm. long voyages at that time without it spoiling or getting Madeirized, which eventually that became desirable and had a whole process made around it, which I promise, guys, we will do a Madeira episode one day (laughs) because I am going to make it happen. But so that was kind of part of the reason why they brought these vines across in the first place. Transportation issues. Yes. So from Hispaniola, wines again went to Mexico, as you stated. Portugal uh, did bring some vines to Brazil. If you know anything about South America, Brazil speaks Portuguese. They are not technically Hispanic because they do not speak Spanish. So uh, the Portuguese were the ones that settled Brazil. They brought vines there as well. When these vines came over, the most common grape is a grape called Mission, which is kind of ironic considering that they were on a and they were on a mission (laughs) Um, (laughs) so this was what came to hispaniola and then eventually mexico and then from there it spread to peru and in peru it was given the name negra peruana or peruvian black which Uh, sounds like it would be an excellent color for a suit Ooh, yeah it does actually i don't even like suits and or wearing suits and that does sound very nice This went on to become the most common grape in Chile. And in Chile, it was given the name Pice. And then from Chile, Mission was brought to Argentina, and it was called Criolla Chica. Chica, as in the one from Five Nights at Freddy's. What? I liked Markiplier back in the day. I'm doing this podcast alone from now on. (laughs) Oh, because I liked Five Nights at Freddy's when I was younger? Hello, welcome back to Laidback Lush. I'm Markiplier. This is the world's quietest tasting. Oh, oh I hate it. I hate it. Okay. Anyway, so, uh, mission. Hold, hold <laughs> oh, I found it. Okay. Criolla. So, yeah, Criolla Chica was the name that mission was given when it was brought to Argentina from Chile. Which translation is just Creole girl. So... The Mission grape is thought to have originated from Spain. There is a possibility that it came from Italy. It closely resembles the Monica grape uh, grown in Sardinia and Spain. But then we have this lovely little thing that happened. Really, a lot of things tied back to Spain's decisions at this time. So in 1595, the Spanish crown decided that nobody should be able to grow vines in the Americas in order to prevent them from losing their export profits. Kind of the same deal as what happened with... When uh, Rome tried to do it. Yeah, with Rome. It it just didn't take. Well, it's like... How are you going to police that? The vines are there. You really expect people to not do anything with them? It's such a, like... Oh, no. (laughs) Silly decision when you look at it. These wine clusters just fell into the vat by themselves, you know? It's like, how are you going to police that, first of all? And second of all, if you're having trouble ensuring the quality of your export, then Mm -hmm. why are people going to adhere again? Yeah, it's silly. So that was not very effective. And then the crown later on rescinded that decision. And that kind of led to a very big boon in winemaking, particularly in Peru. So when you think about South America today, Chile and Argentina are obviously kind of the two big countries that you think of. But Peru at one point was the largest producer of wine in South America. And that was during this time. So they were huge. They were exporting a lot. Um, Their wines were gaining some notoriety in the surrounding regions and even in some places in Europe and even in Spain, actually, funnily enough. However, that did not last for forever, as nothing does. 
memento mori, as they say. <laughs> uh, so in 1687, the southern coast of Peru was struck by a massive earthquake. The earthquake destroyed two cities in Peru at the time, Villa de Pisco and Ica. This earthquake destroyed cellars and also um, like the clay storage containers yeah. and stuff that they were using at the time. Kind of started the end of Peru's big wine boom that they were experiencing. You know, when you lose all of your equipment. Mm -hmm. As we almost did today. Oh, Lord. That was frightening. Um, You know, we we don't always have the money to start up a winery from scratch all over again. And a lot of winemakers in Peru had that problem. So that started to kind of lead to a decline in the wine industry as a whole. Then in 1767, we have the suppression of the Society of Jesus which this is the Jesuits. Mm -hmm. If you are familiar with um, Roman Catholicism, the Jesuits were a sect of Roman Catholics. This is actually a fascinating topic that I want to do more research on. I kind of just did a skim over to kind of acquaint myself with it for this episode. Essentially, a lot of the monarchies in Europe and a lot of secular bodies, and even the Roman Catholic Church itself at one point, decided the Jesuits were no longer acceptable because they had become a little too global in their outlook they were not particularly loyal to monarchies um they were very pan nationality in their worldview in terms of using their influence to help yeah people not just centers of power and your verbiage is actually kind of funny because one of the ways that you can track where they ended up landing is actually the word for bread in a bunch of different countries Mm mm-hmm you literally look across the world and anything that's not connected by landmass to the Iberian Peninsula that has pun as their word for bread were a they were a place that was contacted by the Jesuits. And that includes places like Japan, as well as other places that we're going to be talking about here in a second. Yeah. So again, 1767, all these governments start cracking down in what is called the suppression of the Society of Jesuit or Jesus, sorry. And this targeted the Jesuit order. So in Peru, that meant that their vineyards, because as we've discussed, monks were kind of responsible for a lot of vineyard upkeep and yeah. a bit of cultural knowledge in a lot of places throughout the world. And that continued into colonization when the missionaries would go with conquistadors and whatnot. They mm. would bring that knowledge with them, right? So Peru had a lot of Jesuits. They owned wineries and vineyards. But these got auctioned off to other people when the crackdown happened. And these people didn't have the skills and knowledge that had been passed down by the Jesuits. So the winemaking quality declined even further. So then we have Pisco, which is a kind of uh, brandy, basically, that became much cheaper to produce because of just, you know, advances in distillation technology and understanding of it. It also was much easier to transport, like we exactly, talked about yeah. in a couple of our episodes. It's yeah. Just higher ABV means more alcohol transported and less opportunity for spoilage. Yep. So that outpaced wine production in the 18th century in Peru. And then the wine markets were further damaged by the Spanish crown legalizing the production of rum in Peru. So to this day, Peru has never really fully recovered in terms of like wine production. They still do make some wine, but again, they are not Chile. They are not Argentina. Yeah. They're not producing wine on that scale do anymore. They, do they have even a designation of origin? Um, I don't know. 
I should have looked into that, but uh, I, I neglected to, unfortunately. So I, I, I don't know if they have any uh, designations of origin or not, besides obviously like just a countrywide Peru designation. As far as wine coming into North America, though, to kind of wrap up the Americas, we do know that both Santa Fe and Jacksonville, Florida, there seems to be debate over which one came first from what I read. But those are the two kind of like the first quote unquote bringing of wine to the United States. I know in Santa Fe, it was the Mission Grape. I don't know exactly what was brought to Jacksonville. Yeah, I wasn't exactly able to find that information myself. Yeah, we have that. There were some vines established. It wasn't anything. Again, it was upkept by monks primarily, at least in Santa Fe. It was upkept by monks. Then in the 1600s, uh, you know, early to about 1650, we have the French and the English. Obviously, that was when, you know, Jamestown was starting to be settled and things like that. In Virginia, where we are, shout out Virginia, birthplace of the nation. We have the French and the English bringing over vines from Europe, primarily French varieties from Europe to the new colonies in Virginia. Winemaking, it never really, really took off. Uh, We've mentioned this before in previous episodes. Virginia is a very hard climate to grow wine in with our current technology and understanding of wine and climate and all that. I can only imagine how much more difficult it would have been back then when we didn't have like sprays and all that stuff. Especially when half your workforce dies on on the voyage or when they get here. Yeah, exactly. So they were more focused at that time on uh, tobacco production than they were on on anything else. That was the big cash crop. Yeah. Yeah. So we did have one notable founding father, though, who tried his darndest to make grapes happen. And grapes just... They're not going to happen, Jefferson. Give it up. (laughs) Um, Stop trying to make Viognier happen. We still have uh, Jefferson Vineyard and Monticello Mm -hmm. at the same time. So Yeah. They're they're a thing now. Again, with current understanding, we were able to To bring that back. If you go and tour Monticello, they will show you the plot where his grapevines were. Um, And he tried his best to grow them. He just, he could never get them to really flourish. Well, I mean, especially like, it wasn't like he was a viticulturalist that came over. So he wasn't exactly an expert in the field in the first place. But he loved French wine. But he loved French wine. And he really wanted to make his own and he just could not do it. Uh, Well, I can't, I can't blame him for that effort. I can blame him for other things, but not True. that effort. Yeah, there's yeah, there's critiques to be made. But moving on, so uh, that wraps had, up the Americas. Yeah, and so like during this time, you you started to see more consolidation of power happening in the northern countries of of Europe, uh, specifically the English, as well as the Welsh and the Dutch. Specifically, the Dutch ended up establishing a bit of a trading route. See, the Dutch at the time were being sort of. Um, controlled by Spain, and they didn't like that anymore, so they decided to do their own thing. And this ended up ramping up their production for shipping of their own volition. Yeah. So they, in connection with the British, were producing tons and tons of ships, and they were establishing trade routes, and their strategy was to basically just kind of go around the Iberian Peninsula in order to reach those places originally trying to be contacted by the Spanish. So the Spanish wanted to go to India and instead established a route to the New World, to the Americas. And 
the Dutch were just like, well, but the job's not done. Let's go ahead and actually go to India. But there's a lot of places in between, you know, England and India. Yeah, there's a few miles there. There's or, a, kilometers, excuse me. There's a, there's a few kilometers, yeah. a few land masses. So they decided that they really didn't want to just try and do the whole trip in one go. Instead, uh, in the mid to late 17th century, the uh, Dutch ended up stopping in South Africa, on the southern horn of Africa. They ended up going there, basically uh, trying to establish like a wayfair station so that they could get to other countries, including Japan, actually, even. Yeah. Uh, which I will never stop referencing because it's just the the coolest thing ever because that ended up resulting in like there being samurai who had uh, heritage from Africa, mm-hmm. which is just the coolest thing ever to me. Yeah, even though the anime adaptation was garbage. Hey, it had a couple of good episodes. It, it, yeah, the first two. And I like the opening. The opening's good. Yeah, yeah. Everything else was garbage. All right. You know what? <laughs> this is now a, an anime review podcast. <laughs> yeah. Don't talk- don't watch Yusuke. Oh, God. Don't, don't, don't tell people to not watch it. Just tell oh, them. Oh, I the, will. No, because it will waste their time. I'm sorry. That ending was horrendous. No, just tell them the opinion that they're supposed to have. That's much better. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that what I do already? Yeah. <laughs> this is the podcast where we don't tell you what to think, but how to. Exactly. Oh. Yes. That. That's our mission. <laughs> Just like the grape. So, circle, circle. 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 Just like this trade route. Ah, ah tie-in. Circles. Oh, laid back lush. Circles. We, we are we're comedians. We're, we are <laughs> so funny. Obviously commodities. So uh, from Rheingau by the Dutch East India Trading Company, which had its ties in with Germany and France and all these other places. Uh, so what was bought from the Rheingau? The vines yes, were bought okay. from Rheingau. They would have had to have been planted by what, 1644? Yeah, like mid mid 17th century, 1600s. Um, I, I don't have exact dates for that. They would have had to have planted the vineyard by at least uh, 1652. Yeah. Actually, yeah, no, you have it right here in the notes. Yeah, well, so speaking of 1652, we have Jan von Riebeek. Riebeek? It's R I E B E E C K. So, any Dutch people that listen to this, please uh, let us know in our DMs how to pronounce that. That would be awesome. So, he was charged with establishing vineyards as wine was at the time and also incorrectly thought to ward off scurvy. Yeah. Fun fact. Citrus is what warbs off scurvy, so uh, eat your lemons, kids, yeah. to not get scurvy. But since this was a, a trading stop, perfect place for the understanding of the time to, you know, have a place that can ward off your sailors suffering from gum disease. Yeah. So he was charged with that. The vines, going back a little bit, um, the vines that were brought from the Rheingau did not take root well. They were shipped in uh, sailcloth, and that messed with the way that the roots were able to interact with the soil, and they didn't take very well. Oh, I'm guessing, was it was it too acidic? Uh, I don't know. I, I didn't see that in, in what I researched. Mm. Um, it just, they didn't take well, regardless, is the main point and takeaway from that. But other vines from Bohemia, the Canary Islands, France, Germany, Spain, kind of everywhere were brought 
The primary ones that were brought over, though, were Muscat Appetit Grand, which is French Muscadel, Muscat of Alexandria, which was called Hainpoot, Spanish Hainpoot, or Hainpop. And these were kind of the notable grapes that were grown for a very long time in South Africa. As this settlement became bigger, the East India Company, the Dutch East India Company, decided to let former company men who, you know, had retired or whatever, they allowed them to start establishing vineyards for their own personal use and consumption. So that then further extended the wine growing knowledge and industry of South Africa yeah, and kind of bolstered it. So yeah, that was a growth point for South Africa. And then we have our first bottle produced. Yeah. The first bottle was produced in 1659, a solid seven years after the first establishment of the vineyard. But it wasn't until you had a little bit more establishment of a government that you really saw production ramp up. Yeah. So in 1679, Simon van der Stel uh, succeeded Rybeek as the governor of the colony and established it as Constantia. This ended up doing a uh, a huge number on on the industry there because it was really the the birth of the industry. Yeah. He ended up having a 750 hectare estate where he planted European oaks to protect from the Cape Doctor winds. Yeah. So for those of you who listen to our terroir episode, when you are in an area that has um that isn't really primed for it. One of the things that you can do is you can actually start basically terraforming it mm-hmm. in order to more effectively sustain grape growing. Yeah. So that's what he basically started doing. And you, you might also be thinking, wait a minute, I thought winds were good for grapes because they keep them dry. Normally, yes. However, the Cape Doctor are like quite literally gale force winds. Yeah. So that can shear off leaves. Yeah, it's kind of like the Mistral in the Rhone Valley where they have to do special bush training on some of their vines because the the Mistral is so damaging to the yeah. grapes in that region that you have to take precautions to avoid that. So same thing here, that's why he planted these oaks. Yeah. He needed a little bit more help. Yeah. So he started recruiting winemakers from France, and he also started to import more types of wine in order to just kind of see what would work. Yeah. Specifically, he imported Palomino, which was considered the white French, uh, the Chenin Blanc, which was considered the Steen, and Similion, which was just the green grape. Uh, the, the what? Green grape. No, no, no. The, the, the what? The, the semi-what? Semillon. Oh, it sounded like you said Similion at first. I probably did, oh, well. but I don't remember saying it. Is well, dear listener, it's Semillon, not it's Similion. Similion. <laughs> it's not Vermilion <laughs> with an S. <laughs> it's the it's the simil- the the. It wasn't that the J.R.R. Tolkien. That's the Silmarillion. Silmarillion. Yeah. Gosh, which I'm... I have read more than once, which is probably something I don't want to admit on a live. Well, not a more live than recording. Once? But... Yeah, I read it. I read it. Uh, at the beginning of lockdown for the third time, I think. My goodness. Yeah. I like the Cimmerillion a lot. Okay. Anyway. Actually, I read the uh, the trilogy for the first time over the start of 2020. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, because it was just like, well, what else am I going to do? Exactly. Yeah. Especially since I had like a half hour commute to work. Like if Audible wants to uh, sponsor us at any point, <laughs> I'm yes. a, I am a customer and a proponent. So yeah. 
I'm actually I'm reading or listening to The King Must Die right now. Fund us. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so uh, that on top of the Muscat varieties that we already talked about earlier that were brought over kind of first, they grew to be the main varieties that were grown in Constantia. Those aren't really ones that I find to be particularly popular from South Africa, except for maybe, uh, I well, know, Chenin Blanc. Chenin Blanc, definitely, yeah. Chenin Blanc is, but as far as Semillon and uh, Palomino, I, I don't really see those as frequently. Yeah, I'm sure that they're still there, but, um, you know, Chenin Blanc is kind of the big white, and they're starting to move towards reds and stuff now, because they have the climate in a lot of places for big, hardy reds. Oh my gosh, the, if you've never tried Pinotage from, oh, uh, yeah. from South africa highly recommend you can pick that up in pretty much any specialty wine shop they're gonna have it there they know its value yeah so stell uh he did make some attempts at kind of i guess unifying the wine industry and upping the standards he made some official decrees there was some pretty harsh penalties i couldn't find exactly what they were so i don't know if they were financial or they were more uh, capital punishment focused let's say at the time i'm guessing the latter but the penalties were for harvesting grapes before they were ripe or fermenting in dirty barrels. Yeah. So it's stuff that obviously you probably shouldn't be doing anyway, but in an effort to, again, kind of unify the wine industry, give it a better reputation, because these wines were starting to gain a reputation outside of just South Africa. England caught on, and as we kind of discussed in the last episode, once England catches on to something at this time in history, that gives it some automatic notoriety. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, is like, so he wasn't really known for being a, a like a, a leader. It was just that he had wine experience. That yeah. was literally the whole reason why yeah. they, they sent him there. So and he was smart enough to bring more people with better wine experience. No, exactly. Too. Yeah. Exactly. But as far as being like a good leader. I mean, he was also using slave labor. So there is Precisely. that. Um, again, we have, don't want to get too into the political situation of these countries, but South Africa does have a very fraught relationship with, uh, you know, different skin colors and slavery and class and whatnot. Creative business structure. Yeah, things that are still being felt uh, actually very, very, very tangibly to this day. Very strongly. But uh, yeah, again, we don't want to get too into that here. So... Uh, like I said, these wines did start to get some renown across Europe. And then in 1712, after Stell passed away, the estate was divided into three parts. It was divided into Groot Constantia or Great Constantia. We have Klein or Little Constantia. And then we have Bergville or Bergvillet. Uh, again, I, these are words that I do not know the pronunciation of. So Groot Constantia and Klein Constantia would go on to kind of continue more of that quality legacy that Stein left behind. Not Stein, Stell, sorry. And would go on to produce some quality wines in the region. Uh, I think it was Klein Constantia in particular had some change of hands and kind of fell out of favor. But then a guy came in and fixed it and was really able to get their wines up and going again. The ups and downs of, you know, wine knowledge and changing hands, right? So in 1815, Britain began to open their wine market to wines from South Africa with tariff incentives. So mm -hmm. they lowered the tariffs on those wines. And that really helped the industry because then more people could afford that wine. And those wines became in high demand at the time because they were affordable, you know, much more than French. Because I believe they had actually upped tariffs on French wine because 
who knows what the monarchs were mad about at that time because um but they were mad at france for something and upped tariffs on french wine and blah 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 there's a long history of that going on but it was uh what was it thing i wanted to ask were you able to find a lot of information about wine export on the continent no i don't think because the continent as a whole didn't really have much in terms of wine culture from my understanding um i could be wrong about that obviously we get a very biased uh history of africa in the west but the people writing it down and distributing it or distributing it to our particular country probably weren't giving us a full account yeah but to from what i understand it just never really picked up in terms of exporting to the surrounding regions and particularly because this was something owned by the East India Trading Company for a very long time, you know, they also had a lot of control over where it got, where it ended up, I should say, where those bottles ended up. So I don't think it ever really made its way out of South Africa to surrounding regions. It did mostly just go back to Europe and obviously local consumption as well. Yeah. But a little fun fact before we move on from South Africa that I wanted to kind of insert here because this was the best place to put it. The Dutch actually introduced the technique of adding sulfur to halt fermentation to the French. It was not the Spaniards who were the ones who founded it or well, the, uh, the Iberian Peninsula occupants uh, who were the ones who founded that technique. The Dutch were also big pioneers in adding brandy to a wine to stop a fermentation and uh, make fortified wines. Uh, also, mm-hmm primarily sweet fortified wines yeah for this in australia both actually and new zealand uh now that i think about it a lot of these wines were sweet at the time because uh it was easy to make and it was popular yeah to drink at the time the modern conception of what quote-unquote fine wine is is much more modern so at this time the palate was just sweeter in general yes the palate was sweeter in point of fact, I mean, it was considered like, oh, you really know how to make a good wine if it was able to maintain its sweetness for mm-hmm. an extended period of time. Exactly. And fortification is part of that. And again, that was something the Dutch helped pioneer. Could you imagine what would happen if like the wine we're drinking now, uh, if we were to have brought this to anybody <laughs> from back then? Just well, like, you know, depending on who it was. They might have been it, receptive. It might have been very, yeah, highly esteemed because, you know, you just didn't really have the technology to make this kind of wine. We would have had to very much so be like, hey, so this is going to be a completely different experience from what you're used to. Yeah. Going back in, though, to the wine history. So South Africa actually ties pretty directly into where we're moving next. Exactly. Australia. So Australia was a particular place of interest for uh, people that were trading from the Dutch India Trading Company. Um, When they got there, they ended up being fascinated by the local wildlife. Specifically, you had a group of people reporting back about all these different animals that were there because, as those of you may know, Australia was one of the only places in the world that still had larger marsupials. And that was a particular point of interest for for people. It also had these long spanning tracts of land that became very interesting to English settlers uh, and English businessmen and English explorers because they were like, we could totally hunt here and it would be totally cool. But then there were also people who were like, we might have some other uses for this. These large tracts of land in very warm spaces could be used for something else. So in 1788, 
Governor Arthur Phillip brought the first vines from the Old World to New South Wales from Cape of Good Hope. Yes, which is the very, very, very tip of South Africa. Precisely. So they just kind of plucked that up, brought it over, and planted it. It did not work. Their theory was basically... We don't want to go to the places that are super hot and dry. Mm-hmm. We were talking about this right before the episode. Yeah. They planted them yeah. like on the coast. Yeah. And very damp winds. The vines were not used to it. Uh, it just, it didn't work. And so they eventually, it was a penal colony. And also a lot of settlers from all, all, all across Europe actually started coming to Australia. And they were able to bring vines as well. And they did bring their own vines. And they kind of started to expand out into better winemaking areas. And they were able to cultivate vines reliably by the 1820s for wine production. Precisely. Despite the failure of these poor vines from the Cape of Good Hope. Well, and they didn't even need to go in that far. Like St. Helens. Yeah. Like, that's that's still fairly coastal. Yeah. It's just not... On the coast. I mean, you look at Eden Valley, uh, McLaren Vale. You know, these are places that are basically on the water, but they're not like, you know, on the the coastline. Precisely. You know. Which it's it's interesting how just, and we'll, we'll probably have to give it its own episode, but uh, Australian wines are actually fascinating. Yeah. Their palate ends up having a little bit more on the minty eucalyptus side of uh, herbaceous. Yeah. I, I want to try more more of their stuff. I personally. think Australia, if you try Cabernet Sauvignon in particular from Australia, then from Bordeaux, then into California, and then down to Chile, that is probably the best example of terroir you'll ever get in your life. I think that should be an episode. I think we should do, this will be an expensive episode, but we should do a little tasting of the same grape from different climates and just like note their yeah. differences. Yeah, I like that idea. We should uh, definitely do that. So tell me more about winemaking in Australia. What yeah. what sort of started, when did we really see that turnaround from our failed efforts to some more successful efforts? Yeah, so uh, like I said, by the 1820s, we were starting to reliably get good wines from vines that the settlers had brought. 1822 actually was the year that Gregory Blacksland began to export Australian wine. And that is spelt with an X, not yes. a CK. Yes, uh, back to Europe. The wine started to get a reputation in Europe. In 1833, we have a guy named James Busby. He brought Shiraz and Grenache cuttings from Spain and France, and I put that in because Shiraz is basically like the big grape of Australia yeah. now. Fantastic for your barbecue. Yes, So uh, wine development was driven pretty heavily by the European settlers, as I already said. You know, a lot of these people were coming from France, from uh, obviously England, although maybe not for great reasons from England since it was a penal colony. But, you know, they also brought that winemaking knowledge with them. So that really helped boost the industry and up the quality level and really get reputation very quick compared to some of these other places where it took, you know, decades and decades and decades for them yeah, that to is get recognized remarkably quick because even so like in the americas in places that now have notoriety mm-hmm. they were known for being sweet wine producers you yeah. have california that was known primarily for having sweet merlot yeah and then even from australia you didn't really see uh, a lot of those finer wines being produced until much later yeah 
Um, 1960s actually to be exact. Yeah. Which it's, it's weird how that seems to be the trend. And I, I wonder if it has to do with volume sold for investment in, uh, for reinvestment into making finer wines. Well, let's actually get into that. Let's circle back to that. <laughs> let's circle back. Let's circle back to that. Let's be- circle back to that. Uh, because they weren't our... the only landmass at that time that was being introduced yeah. to wine. Yeah, I was about to say, let's circle back to that after our next country, which shares a lot of its history with Australia, which is New Zealand. And the reason this country shares a lot of crossover with Australia is because a lot of people just stopped at New Zealand on the way to Australia or on the way back from Australia. (laughs) Although once you get into New Zealand, like honestly, and this is nothing against Australia. I have Australian friends. I love them. When I was working in the Middle East at a winery, I was working with people from Australia. There was at least four or five of them that were there at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. But why on earth would you stop in New Zealand where they don't even really have like snakes and decide to go to Australia where everything wants to kill you? Penal colony, Michael. Oh, that's right. Oh, you know what? It's all actually starting to fall Uh into place. The dots are connecting. They went to that place and they said, this is hell. This is literally hell where Mm -hmm. things will come up and box you. Yeah. So not there, though, but in the place where the Lord of the Rings was filmed, New Zealand. One of the most beautiful places on Earth, New Zealand. So, yeah, we have in 1819 a guy named Samuel Marsden. He was an Anglican missionary. He had the first recorded planting of grapevines at the Bay of Islands, which is in Kerikeri. That is on the North Island of New Zealand. The earliest recorded winemaker was a guy, a Scotsman, uh, named James Busby. Oh, so same dude. Yes. Yeah. So he actually was in Australia first and then came over. And he brought over vines in 1836 versus 1833 for Australia for him. What an honor for that guy, like, to be included in... In, in two countries, in yeah. two countries. I know literally nothing about James Busby other than the fact that he brought over Shiraz and was responsible for that he, before before we were filming this. He really liked wine. He really liked wine. <laughs> he really liked I, wine. I hope he didn't do anything else that was untoward. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, let's not look too far into him. Most of might start finding problematic history. Anyway. I love um, how delicately we are having to do this episode. <laughs> and please, I, I appreciate everybody who is bearing with us as we tread on the eggshells that are uh, the gratefulness for grapes having their expression in different countries while not exactly liking how they got there. Yeah, exactly. Anywho, so tell me more about New Zealand wine. Yeah, so our oldest vineyard was established by Marist missionaries uh, in Hawke's Bay, and mm-hmm. that is the Mission Estate. The Mission Estate, if I remember correctly, I am 99% sure is still in operation, actually. I believe so. Obviously, it's a historical site, so there's at least that. I know they preserved it at least as a historical site. In 1881, William Henry Beetham was the first person to plant Pinot Noir. And if you know anything about New Zealand's wine industry, Pinot Noir and Sauvignon Blanc are the two staple grapes of that country. So that was a cool little fact. I was not able to find when Sauvignon Blanc was first introduced. Um, Which is strange because, mm -hmm. like, I guess it was just like a sleeper hit. Now it's literally like the most popular Sauvignon Blanc. It also could have come later because, again, I didn't really look much past the, you know, 20th century onward for this episode Mm because I was trying to keep it more about, you know, the inception of these places. Mm -hmm. So it might have just be that it got introduced later and took up steam. I don't know. Anyway, 
So the late 19th and early 20th centuries saw a lot of Dalmatian immigrants come, and they brought a lot of intercultural knowledge with them. Dalmatia is in modern-day Croatia. They are a part of Croatia now. They planted vineyards in West and North Auckland. They primarily made fortified wines and table wines, kind of just to their own taste that they brought with them from Dalmatia. But they had a huge impact on the wine industry because they were a very big producing force in New Zealand at the time. Mm -hmm. Then from our early to mid 20th century, the wine industry growth was really hampered by the Great Depression. There was a big temperance movement, very similar to what we saw here during our prohibition era that happened in New Zealand. Not quite as severe in consequence. Uh, lucky for them. And uh, their export markets were also dominated primarily by wool, meat, and dairy due to some trade agreements with Europe at I the see. time. So in 1973, so actually pretty recently by comparison, Britain entered the European Economic Community. And that basically led to a lot of restructuring of these trade agreements and whatnot. And that in turn led to a restructuring of New Zealand's agricultural economy that was a lot more favorable to wine production because they were not funneling all their agricultural resources to wool and dairy. Also, that trade agreement circling back to Australia and their wine growth, that trade agreement also helped open the industry a lot to Australian, exporting from Australia to Europe. On top of the you know restructuring of these trade agreements, this is when we really started to see a shift from these sweet fortified styles of wine and these like table wines, you know, very just like quaffable, not fancy quote unquote or quality wines that we tend to think about from certain regions, at least in these countries now. During the 60s and 70s, there was a very big shift in the wine world and the 80s really cemented this where yeah. drier heavier, more quote-unquote serious wines became the thing, quote-unquote, in the wine world, which is kind of funny because now we're starting to see a little bit of a backlash against that, going more traditional with wine, less oak, less um, intervention in the wine, more easy drinking, more early drinking styles of wine. But at the time, that's when a lot of these countries shifted their focus into making higher quality wines. Even the Americas. Yes. If you're familiar with Napa Valley in particular. Yeah. That was a big, uh, that was a big driver. Well, and it, it started to combat that more French-centric style of, of thought. Because at the time, it was really that France thought of itself, and Europe in general, thought of France as being the place still kind of does in a way but it, it still does but they couldn't get over the fact that they ended up losing a competition specifically to california yeah and it was a blind tasting it wasn't as though it was uh it was a setup for to gain notoriety mm -hmm. but the fact is that it allowed for the industry to start spreading in that style to really you know compare yeah all these different places yep I do like the fact, though, that we are, I don't like it being an issue of backlash, mm -hmm. but having more of a shift to where the expression of wine is something that can be sweet and still be fine. Yeah. So I, I think we're just kind of getting back into balance because the 80s, with the onset of the real massive popularity of Bordeaux style wine, um, just saw this like really intense oak regimen 
bold red grapes, extract it to hell and back for as much tannin, as much flavor, as much punch you can get into that wine as possible. We're starting to see a bit of a backtracking on that and maybe some more, I would call it refined, I guess, uh, expressions of wine and more um, an expression of that terroir and that particular site that it was grown on is becoming much more popular now. And so that concludes our wine history on the New World. So that's how the wine grape went from being just this little vine that cropped up in Lebanon, traveled all the way across the world to China through the Silk Road, ended up becoming a thing in the Caucasus Mountains, developed itself throughout Egypt and Rome, and traveled throughout all these different European countries until it finally landed pretty much on every single continent. That's how that little grape and those wine practices ended up traveling. So this concludes our wine history. We hope you guys enjoyed it. Yeah, so we hope you enjoyed this little series documenting the travel of Venus Vinifora. Yes, but where do we go from here, Michael? Something in the back of my mind tells me there's an important event coming up. Is it possibly our anniversary? It might just be our anniversary. Our anniversary. Yes, our oh anniversary. Yes. January 12th in particular, actually. I cannot guarantee that the episode will be up on the 12th. I no. do apologize for that. Yeah. But we do have schedules. We, we have schedules, and also the uh, invasiveness of Omicron is a little bit of a problem, so... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have no idea what's going to happen in the next month. However... We will be recording an episode as kind of a year in review, last call for any, you know, questions, comments, uh, feedback from the past year that uh, you have for us. We are very happy to receive that and to work it into our episode. It's very exciting. I've had a ton of fun this whole past year being able to record with you. I have learned so much myself in the past year that I never would have had time to even research while I was working as a salesman. And it's been an absolute blast. I mean, I learned a lot just by doing it. And, you know, I I studied (laughs) very hard to begin with before we even knew this podcast was going to happen. Oh, my gosh. So... I mean, particularly about spirits and stuff. Like, who would have ever thought I would know about the production of Mezcal? But we also want to just thank you guys because we didn't know that this was going to turn into what it has been becoming. Mm -hmm. Um, And we wouldn't be as encouraged to continue if we didn't actually have our our motley crew of of listeners. We were actually just joking. We're messaging each other the other day that our content has somehow gotten a lot better and also so much worse at the same time. (laughs) Maybe not worse, but maybe I think we kind of stopped trying to be as... um, Overly professional. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Wait a minute. We were ever overly professional? Well, we tried. We tried. If you listen to the first couple of episodes, we were trying real it, hard. It didn't work because it doesn't mesh with our personalities. Yeah. Like, we can be professional, but this is a fun podcast yeah. for us to make, so yeah. we have we'll, fun doing it. We'll get it. more into that, I think, in the next episode and kind of, you know, looking back. Uh, but, yeah, so I'm, I'm very excited to do that episode. I'm very excited that we were able to do this for a year. Yeah consistently yeah how did we do this yeah i don't know yeah how did we actually do this lots of hours lots of hours going through the seven stages of grief listening to my voice (laughs) um the the questions that i get from this guy (laughs) Um, 
<laughs> just asking me about does my voice sound like a b and c and i'm just like no no it doesn't are you uh, editing right now <laughs> no no yeah, yeah. <laughs> but thank you guys so much for joining us thank you guys for this past year yeah um i am probably going to thank you 30 more times in the next episode because that's just how grateful that i am yes but in any case i have been michael i have been gabe And this has been Laid Back Lush. Cheers. Cheers.